The herd of elephants is now dismissed <laughs> to go to children's church. What a glorious song to sing together, amen? I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we'll be reading from verse 12 of chapter 3 through verse 1 of chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible and you have trouble getting around the Bible, you don't know where that would be, it's on page 981 is where Philippians 3 is, and just look down to find the small verse 12, and that's where we'll begin reading. Before we do, I wanted to uh, share with you an app that I came across recently. It's from the Joshua Project. Uh, the Joshua Project uh, focuses on unreached peoples in the world, and the app is actually called Unreached of the Day, Unreached of the Day. And so I've got my phone set to where first thing in the morning, I will get a notification, and each day there is an unreached people group uh, to be praying for that day. So it's very simple. I just go... Uh, if, it, if I get the notification, which I have, I finally figured out how to do that, which is very good on me, right? But the, uh, the Hausa people of Niger are the people that uh, we're praying for today. They make up about half of the population. Uh, only 2% are Christian. Only 1.8% would be evangelical. And uh, even then, there is, there is both, uh, there's a large, the largest proportion, the greatest majority of the house of people are Sunni Muslims, and even then they mix that with some of their traditional religions, so there are a number of obstacles there in reaching them. But it gives information, it gives statistics, it lets you know, do they have the Jesus film in their language? Do they have, what, how much of the Bible do they have in their language? I would encourage you to get that. It, it, it doesn't take, it just pops up on my phone. If you don't know how to do that, don't ask me. I don't remember how I did it. But it just pops up on my phone. Ask your children or your grandchildren. They'll help you out. Um, and, uh, but then it gives opportunity to pray for those, that people group each day. Um, so I just wanted to let you know about that app and encourage you to get it. But let's read, uh, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, to chapter 4, verse 1. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. 
but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, from who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word, for where else can we go for truth and for life, for hope, for help, for the good news of the Lord Jesus? So we pray now by your Spirit that you will speak to us, that you will be our teacher, because this is your word, we are your people, I am your servant, it's all for your glory. We also want to pray for the Hausa people in Niger this morning. Lord, we ask you to strengthen that 2% who are believers in Jesus. We pray that you will give them grace to endure the opposition they face. That you would help them to be faithful in sharing the gospel. We pray you would provide for them when they're cut off from family and friends, and their businesses. We pray, God, you would take this same word that we read and preach here and that they have and that you would reach many, that many who are now Muslim would turn to the one true God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Speak, O Lord, for we, your church, are listening. In Christ's name, amen. This week, uh, I was scrolling through Facebook, as one does, and I came across a story that I hadn't seen before. It was about uh, an international cross-country race. It's December 2012 in Burlada, uh, Spain, and Abel Mutai, a Kenyan man, is in the lead of this race. In fact, he has such a lead that he cannot be overcome by anyone behind him. So, he crosses the finish line, eases up, slows down, checks his watch for his finishing time, and is ready to rest and celebrate. But there's a problem. He didn't actually cross the finish line. He was 10 meters short of the finish line when he eased up and started to slow down and check his watch. And his confusion about where the finish line is made it possible for the Spanish runner behind him to catch him, to pass him, and to win. But that's actually not what happened. What happened was the man in second place, Ivan Fernandez Anaya, helps his competitor. Now, they, they don't speak a common language, but through uh, pointing and body language and the urgency of his voice, Anaya helps him to realize that he's made a mistake, and so he pushes Mutai to actually cross the real finish line and win. 
Now, for some of you, this is a feel-good story about the goodness and integrity of sports. For others of you, you think the Spaniard is crazy because mistakes are part of sports and he should have just taken the win. Uh, I'm going to let you two groups, you know, you can figure that out over lunch. I'm not here to put my dog in that fight. What What I would tell you, though is that what got me about the story is that anyone running in a race wouldn't know where the finish line is, right? That, that you, would, you would think setting out, I know exactly where I have to get. I mean, it had a big arch over it, and he came up 10 meters short. To be confused about that, is terrible because you come up even one meter short, not only do you not win, you don't finish. And in the Christian life, I wonder what it is you think the finishing line is. What is the goal? What is the end? Is becoming a Christian the finish line? Praying a particular prayer or being baptized or joining a church? Is that the finish line? Now, becoming a Christian is wonderful. It's, I love hearing people's stories about how they came to faith in Jesus, the circumstances that they were in, and the, the people God used to share the gospel with them. I love it. I love being there and being with them as they turn in their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing. But is that the end? Is that the finish line? Do you just get past there and you just say, well, you're good to go? Nothing else needed. Well, I think yes and no is probably the answer, but the Apostle Paul underlines in a, a big no. This is not the finish line. You see, back in just a few verses before this, in chapter 3, verse 9, he talks about turning from his own righteousness, from his own spiritual resume and turning to Jesus and His righteousness. He says that He wants to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We're justified by faith. We're saved by faith. But that moment, that glorious moment of trusting in Christ isn't meant to be the end. It's the beginning. Salvation in the Bible is not one single moment. It is a large, broad category. It begins at that glorious moment. We have been saved. But then he goes on, just after saying that, to say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In Paul's mind, there's something after that. There's something he's going for. The finishing line wasn't, Lord, save me. That wasn't the finishing line, apparently. He says there's more. Paul knows Christ. He's already said that. But now he wants to know him more and more. He wants to know what it means to live being strengthened by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. He wants to share in suffering with Christ. He wants to follow in his footsteps as he suffers. 
He wants to follow him all the way to death because that's the path that leads to the resurrection from the dead. You ever thought about that phrase, resurrection from the dead? Do you know what has to come before resurrection? Death. You see, the Christian life in the Apostle Paul's mind is not a moment. It's not the great Christian decision. It is a life. A life of following Jesus. A life of following Him through joys and through sorrows, on pleasant days and on painful days. The Christian life is a life. And it requires perseverance. It requires endurance. And the New Testament is clear on this. We could go to several texts. We're not going to. I just want to read one that points this out, which is from 1 John chapter 2, where John, the Apostle John writes... They, meaning these who have left, went out from us, these false teachers, these false believers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, the evidence that one was a real Christian in John's mind is one who continues in it, not one who simply says it. So very, leaving the Christian faith, calling it quits before the finish line, coming up short, ten, coming up 10 meters short, coming up, you know, you, you, know you, you, you have some kind of religious experience, and then a couple of years later, you're like, well, I'm done with this. This is just not... This is, I'm just done with it. I'm throwing it away. The fact is, is that you're throwing away. There's nothing actually in your hand when you throw it away. What you're throwing away is falsehood. What you're throwing away is something you never actually had. That's what John is saying. And so the Christian life requires perseverance. Christian life is a life, and it doesn't end. This perseverance doesn't end until this life ends. And if that doesn't make sense to you, just ask, at what point does the Lord want you to stop trusting in Jesus? At what point does the Lord want you to stop obeying Him? The answer is He doesn't. It's all the way to the end. And in many ways, Paul is like that Spaniard coming up behind us, making sure that we see where the finish line really is and that we get there. His point is that Christians must persevere in the faith. And he shows us what it takes to persevere. First, it takes humble determination. It takes humble determination. At the end of verse 11, Paul says he wants to attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, another way that that verb can be translated is to arrive. He wants to arrive, but then right on the heels of that in verse 12, what he says is, I haven't arrived. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. It takes humility to see, to see that, to recognize I am not. I'm not there. I haven't arrived. I have a great deal to go. There's no point in life when we're able to say as Christians, I'm arri I've arrived. I'm done. I'm complete. Nice work, Lord. See you in heaven. There's no point we'll do that. 
I remember sitting in my office with 90-year-old Lois Davis. Tears coming from her eyes because she longed for me to help her continue to grow as a Christian at 90 years old. Isn't that wonderful? If the Lord extends your life to 90, don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to be longing to learn, to grow, to be more like Christ? You see, the fact is we may know our Bibles quite well. We may read many helpful books and weep many tears over sin and pray many prayers for help and grace and teach and disciple and serve others for many years. We may preach many sermons and praise God for all of that, but there's a deception within the the knowing and the doing that if I know enough and if I do enough and if I grow just enough, I will definitely have arrived. And of all the people that you might think had knew enough and had done enough to have arrived, you'd think the Apostle Paul would, right? And yet, he says, I haven't. I haven't made it. I haven't arrived. I'm not done growing. I'm not done serving. I can't retire. I haven't grabbed hold of everything Christ died to give me yet. It's interesting. Some people go into the, you know, they're just launching out onto their career. How's it going in your career? Well, only 27 years left until I can retire. Woo! And then if you want, they'll give you the hours that'll take. (laughs) They start their career with the idea, I cannot wait to be done. There's no point in this life where we just retire to to the beach. That's it. No more Christian growth for me. I'm done. But we live in a society that points that there's some kind of line that you cross at some point that when maybe you retire from your career, you also retire from a bunch of other things in life. Beware of that deception, brothers and sisters. There is no retiring from the Christian life. There is no sitting in a pew set on cruise control until death happens to show up. Oh, the type of service that you do may change significantly. But that's because the Lord needs you doing a different kind of service. He ordains that you do something different for those years. But the baton is not passed to the next generation fully until we enter into glory because we don't arrive we don't arrive here at least so you see to think that we've arrived is to be confused about where the finish line is so it takes humility to know to say what Paul said I have not already obtained this I have not made it my own but also paired with this humility is determination Right? Humble determination. So he says, but, uh, verse 12, I press on to make it my own. Verse 13, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Twice he says, I press on. 
It's the Greek word dioko. And I, I, this is not the first time we've been through Philippians. I think it was back in 2013 we went through Philippians. And after we studied this particular passage, uh, Michelle Graff got a piece of wood, and I think it's burned on there, somehow imprinted the word dioko on the piece of wood, and it's still sitting in my office. This idea of pressing on. It's the notion that we're going to run after something with great passion, that nothing is going to get in the way of us getting there. We are driven to get it. It's the determination of a student who wants to be valedictorian. It's the determination of an Olympic athlete as they train for the games. It's the determination of a parent whose child gets away from them in the mall. They're, they're driven. They're going to get the child back no matter what it takes. This is how Paul pursues spiritual growth. It doesn't just happen. You remember what he said to them in chapter 2 verse 12? He said, work out your own salvation. Meaning, work. And now here in chapter 3, he says, this is what I'm doing. I press on. I work as well. He says in verse 13, I forget, forgetting what lies behind, like a runner not looking over his shoulder, not dwelling on past successes or failures, but running the race in front of him. He says he strains forward, digging deep to give every bit of energy in order to get to and cross the finish line. This week, Susan and I went to uh, our first track meet as parents of a competitor. And it was very cold. I did not appreciate the coldness. Um, when you can't feel your toes, you just wonder, how is it that these people are still running and jumping and all of these things? Um, but we're standing there waiting on uh, our daughter's event, and we're standing, we're watching all the other races, all the other events, and the 400-meter, the, the girls' 400-meter race. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's just once around the track, all right? So they're lined up, and, and the starting gun goes off, and they take off. And one of the competitors, one of the girl's father is standing within earshot. And he's standing there right before that last straightaway. And his daughter comes around and she and another girl are kind of neck and neck for first place. And when she, when, he get, when she gets right there, he says, last hundred, dig deep, finish this. In other words... Go and find energy you didn't even know that you had and get to that finish line and win that race. And you know what? She did. She won. And Paul is standing on the side of the track with you and me on it saying, last hundred. Dig deep. Be determined. Run hard. Don't slack up now. Strain forward. Pursue the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul does not elaborate on what he means here, but these words resonate with all kinds of New Testament passages. This goal, this prize... So we think of Matthew 25, 23, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. 
1 Peter 5, 4, to regain the unfading crown of glory. 2 Timothy 4, 8, to receive the crown of righteousness that the Lord will give us on that day. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, to enter into the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. John 14, to get to that place that Jesus has prepared for us. 1 John 3, 2, to see Jesus as He is and to be made like Him fully. 1 Corinthians 15, to be given that imperishable, glorified body. Revelation 21, 4, to begin an eternal, painless, tearless, sinless existence. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, to forever be with the Lord. And Revelation 22, 5, to reign with Him forever. And you could just go on and on, couldn't you? It's all in front of us. The the greatest thing about belonging to the Lord Jesus lies in front of us until we get there. Pursue the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus because ultimately Christ Jesus Himself is the great reward of eternity. He Himself is our life, our peace, our reward. And to get there, to enjoy that, to get that prize, we must persevere with humble determination. Paul says it's what, that he does this because of what Christ has already done for him. Verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So notice that Paul doesn't press on in order to earn a place with Christ. He's not living a particular kind of life to earn a place with Christ. He's persevering in faith because he already belongs to Christ. Christ Jesus has made me his own. That is one way to talk about being a Christian, to belong to Jesus, to be made Jesus' own, that we persevere because we belong to Jesus. I wonder, do you belong to Jesus? The Bible says that Christians have been bought with a price, that the death of Jesus makes us His. That Jesus paid it all, and all to Him we owe. If you don't belong to Jesus, oh, dear friend, He receives all who come to Him by faith. He has died to forgive sin. He has been raised to conquer death and hell. And you can say with Paul, if you had come to him by faith, you can say, Christ Jesus made me his own. You see, even in that, we don't go make Jesus our own. Jesus comes and makes us his own. Do you belong to Jesus? The other thing that he says is that this determination to persevere is what spiritual maturity looks like. Look at verse 15. Let those of us who are mature 
think this way. What is this way? The this way is, I have not already obtained it, I press on. That is the way to think. And if in anything you think otherwise, anything other than that, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. I wondered, if you're a Christian, do the words humble determination describe your approach to spiritual growth? I mean, I think many Christians would actually say they've not arrived, wouldn't they? I've heard many people say they don't, they don't know the Lord like they should, they don't read the Bible like they should, they don't pray like they should, they're not as spiritually mature as they, as they should be, and all, all of these other things. There's a very uh, quick embrace of the what I'm not and where I'm not and how far along I am not. But I wonder, if that's you and you would say those kinds of things, I wonder... Are you really content with that? Are you really satisfied to not know the Lord well? Are you really satisfied to not be in the Scripture? Are you really satisfied to not pray as you ought? I wonder, are you really satisfied to not serve the Lord? I think Paul would say you ought not to be. You ought not to be. There ought to be a holy discontentment within us, driving us to want to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ, to always be straining forward. I wonder what that would look like in your life. What would it look like for you to be pressing on? I mean, just think about your life. Think about your time. Think about how you spend your days. What would it look like within the things that God has given you, the family, the work, all of the things God has given you to do? What would it look like for you to press on? What would it look like for you to strain forward, maybe in ways you're not doing now? What would it look like for nothing to get in the way of seeking to be more like Jesus? I wonder what would need to change in your life. That's a question I'll leave for you. But it takes humble determination to persevere in the faith. The, other thing, the next thing is that it takes godly examples. It's interesting, in the, as you read the New Testament, Paul never shies away from setting himself out as an example for others. He does it in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And then 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. When he writes to the Thessalonians, he says that he lives as he does to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And so he does the same thing here in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. By the way, this is why we know that Paul is commanding us to press on. He's not just suggesting it. When he says, join in imitating me, it's a command. He's not just telling you, this is how I approach spiritual growth. You know, I forget what's behind. I strain forward. Uh, I, I haven't obtained it, but I press on. Um, and if you'd, if you'd like, that's, an, that's one acceptable way to try to grow, but there's a lot of other ways too. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, imitate me. Very literally, he basically says, become me. 
I mean, that's really strong language, isn't it? Become like me. Become me. Do what I'm doing. Now that raises a question, doesn't it? If Paul hasn't arrived, why would Paul command us to be like him? Well, it's not because he's at the destination. It's because he's headed in the right direction with humble determination. He's calling them to do what he's doing. He's not... He's saying, head this direction, press on, be determined, dig deep, last hundred, let's go. But it's not just him. He also commands this, the rest of verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Godly examples are used by God to spur us on, to challenge us. We find godly examples in the biographies of men and women from the past. We find godly examples in the pews around us, examples of what it means to pray, what it means to be humble, to have courage, to trust God in trials, to strive for Christ's likeness, to be giving, to confess sin, to forgive sin. So many examples of godliness. Paul says, keep your eyes on them. But Paul doesn't leave it there. There's actually somewhere our eyes shouldn't go, verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, who's he talking about here? He doesn't say. But is it, is it the Judaizers? Is it that crew that Stephen talked to us about last week? The, the ones he calls dogs up in verse 2? Is that who he's saying? Don't, 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 don't follow their walk. Is he talking about the preachers back in chapter 1 who preach faithfully but their motives are shady? Is it some other group? Well, we actually can't have a lot of certainty. But you know who was certain? The Philippians. When this was read out loud to them, they didn't have to have discussions about, well, who do you think Paul is talking about here? They would remember, he's warned them many times about these folks. So they'd just be nodding their heads, even if we're scratching our heads about the whole thing. But whoever it is, most likely, these are people who say that they are Christians but their lives don't match. Just think about this. Paul, nowhere in the New Testament, tells us that we ought not to follow the example of you know, blatant Christ-denouncing pagans. Of course, their manner of life we need to avoid. But he's not, the people that he warns us about, have you noticed this? The people he warns us about are false teachers. People who are wolves in sheep's clothing. This is the great concern for Paul. Those who seem to be Christian but aren't. Those who say that they're Christian but don't live it out. Those who have the appearance of godliness but deny it. Those who even have the vocabulary of godliness but don't live out what they say. And Paul uses this... I mean, that doesn't sound too bad, right? I mean, like... Oh, yeah, I know, he doesn't live up, he doesn't live out the life that he says, but, you know. And Paul steps in and says, dear friend, 
That's what it means to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. To simply say, I follow Jesus, is not sufficient. If you don't actually follow Jesus, you are an enemy of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they boast in shameful things. Don't follow them. These are sobering words, aren't they? I mean, so many will show up to churches like this one today, and they will sing, and they will give, and they will gladly tell you that they are a Christian. But when you see them outside the walls, they're not following Jesus. They're driven by their own desires, their own desires within their career, their own desires in relationships. Their profession of faith in the end is empty, it's hollow, it's meaningless. Which demands the question, friend, are you truly following Jesus? If, if, if we were to watch video of you from Monday to Saturday, would there be any evidence that Jesus Christ is Lord? Would there be any evidence that you are concerned to obey Him? Would there be any evidence that the Bible is sufficient for all of life? Would there be any evidence that the love of God has changed you? Paul tells the Philippians to follow him, to follow other godly examples, but to avoid these ungodly folk. And so we should do the same. We should look for godly examples. We should look for those who are persevering in the faith. We should not idolize them, but we should do what Paul says and keep our eyes on them. Watch them as they walk through that trial. I'm so thankful for the examples that I have seen in here of men and women walking through trials trusting the Lord. Struggling with health, struggling with children, struggling with their, their, their jobs, struggling with whatever it is, but always turning to the Lord. You're an example. But in addition to looking to others, it seems prudent to consider ourselves, doesn't it? It seems prudent to say, if my Christian friends and co-workers and neighbors imitated me, would they be pursuing growth in Christ? Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, if your children and grandchildren follow in your footsteps, will they be following Jesus? It takes godly examples to persevere in the faith. We need them for ourselves. And we need to understand that we need to be them for those who come behind, for those that we walk with, for those in our church. It takes humble determination, it takes godly examples, and it takes expectant faith. 
While we strive and strain, while we dig deep and work hard to grow, while we seek to win the prize, get to the goal, cross the finish line, we do so knowing that getting there doesn't ultimately depend on us, it depends on Jesus. Notice what he says in verses 20 to 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, from whom, from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What will He do? He'll transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. If it were only up to us, we'd just get to death's door and that'd be it. Maybe. If it were up to us, we'd be done now, wouldn't we? We'd just throw it out the window. We're such fickle creatures. We think we can get much farther than we can. We wouldn't even make it to death. We wouldn't make it to lunch. But Paul says, by, the spirit, by that, 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 that persevering ultimately is not going to be dependent on us. Crossing the finish line is not ultimately dependent on you. It's dependent on Jesus Christ who has promised to transform you, who has promised to bring you home, who said nothing will ever pluck you from His hand. Paul already pointed to this in chapter 1, didn't he? He said, He who began a good work in you will complete it. He will. And there's more of this throughout the New Testament. Even in John 14, Jesus says, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul concludes by saying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, may you get to the finish line. And then he says, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. And then Jude 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. He is able to do that. You are not. So yes, we must persevere in the faith. Yes, we must strive. But we cannot do it on our own. Our faith is not strong enough. We will only persevere because Jesus perseveres with us in grace. Because as it were, God looks at us and says, I press on for my goal. And I will not fail. Isn't that good news? Doesn't that make striving all the more purposeful? You're not running on a treadmill anymore. Running on a treadmill is ridiculous. You're running as hard as you can and not going anywhere. You're running actually to somewhere. The Lord is taking you somewhere. You're actually going. We're going to arrive there because God's grace promises it. That's great news. I can run with that. I can know to keep going because every step of the way, because God works in me to will and to do His good pleasure, every step energized by Him, the finish line promised by Him, the win guaranteed by Him, won by Him. So, of course, we must, we must pour ourselves out to run, but we need this vision of a powerful, promise-keeping God, of a Savior who's not only died and risen and ascended, but will return and will finish the job. Nothing is uncertain about our future, dear friends. 
Only the path there, we may bump into uncertainties that we didn't expect. But the end is sure. And it's the end that gives us hope to keep going in the uncertain path of life. And so having reminded them that God will keep His promise, that Jesus will complete the work, Paul repeats the call to persevere. It's the same call, different words. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Friend, if you profess to be a Christian, you must press on. You must forget what's behind and strain toward the goal and run to win the prize and follow in the footsteps of those who've gone before us and stand firm in the Lord. Christians must persevere in the faith. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you recognizing that we have not already obtained all that you have promised to us. We are thankful for the seal and promise and down payment of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We are thankful that you preserve us as we persevere in the faith. We are thankful for the promise of Christ's return, for the promise of finishing the work that you began in us. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace and strength to persevere, to endure. through all of life. Father, we want to cross the finish line, to finish well. And we pray you'll help us to do that. For Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. As a reminder, in just a few moments, we're going to have a members meeting. If you are not a member of Gray Road, thank you for being here. We're glad you're here, but you're dismissed.